Dum. Back for more Yusase Ice Coffee, I see. Episode 105 kicks off with the North Star and the Bear alongside the barrier. The North Star's winch worked an endless line carrying the larger tractor sleds up to a pulley mounted on the first rise inland, and the International Harvester T20 tractor, painted a jolly red and only able to make progress in reverse, carried the sleds from the pulley to the first hinterland cache, where dog teams then broke the loads up and carried them further south. The unloading of the celebrated snow cruiser was caught on multiple cine cameras, and what the expedition leadership expected to play out as a propitious moment in Antarctic history actually played out more as farce. The ice edge the North Star lay alongside sat far below the level of the ship's weather deck, and floating on the sea, rose and fell with the tide, thwarting the method applied in Boston of waiting for the deck to fall level with the wharf. Telegraph poles formed the rails beneath a massive ramp of cross timbers assembled by all available hands under the instruction of the carpenters. Poulter took the control levers and drove the Penguin 1 over the bulwarks and began the descent in stately form, but the starboard front wheel cracked through the cross timbers. Bird, riding atop the behemoth, can be seen getting thrown about like a rag doll, and it makes me giggle every time because I'm a bastard like that. <laughs> Hang on. I'll pull the file up. Here we go. Poulter gives it some herbs, clouds of diesel smoke and water vapour in the cold air, onto the ramp. There she goes. She's going down, and she's down by the starboard bow, and Bird's on his way astern, and Poulter gives it more gas, and the machine lurches forward. It's dragging itself clear of what's now a big pile of dunnage, and Bird's falling forward onto the exhaust stacks. Away across the ice flats and clear from the edge. Bird waves an arm overhead. He's safe, unharmed. Curse him. Did I mention Schadenfreude is my secret lover? Under Elton Wade's command, the snow cruiser was good to go, except it didn't. The big, bald tyres didn't find enough traction in the snow in spite of providing 12 square foot of surface contact at any moment. The weight of the machine pressed that 12 square foot of surface contact up to 3 feet into the landscape as the snow beneath it compressed. Who could have seen that coming? Any damn fool is the answer to that rhetorical question. Bolt the spare tyres alongside the front wheels for more surface area contact. Still no traction. Chains on the back wheels to bite into the snow surface. Still no traction. Unload everything not bolted down to ease up on the newtons per square inch to mix units for a moment. Still no traction. Unexpectedly, traction did come the snow cruiser's way by driving in reverse. But the low speed and tiny carrying capacity remaining after the unloading necessary to get the machine moving made the Penguin 1, nicknamed Bouncing Betty, by those who endured travelling in it over any distance. Useless for the intended polar goal. It did manage a 50 mile traverse in reverse, but carrying too little gear and supplies over that short distance to make establishing it as a remote field station more worthy than returning it to West Base, where it served as one of the better snowproofed and better heated accommodation blocks, and where its radio setup bore the brunt of West Base transmission and reception. Two 12-hour shifts made use of the 24-hour daylight, and the usual misery trail shenanigans saw Little America 3's building materials gradually come together on the selected site. Crabeater and Weddell seal carcasses began accumulating for the winter dog food cache 
under an immediate and sustained hunting program. Jack Perkins also caught and prepared three Ross seals, a species not encountered during Bird's previous expeditions, for museum collections. Three of the Waddell seals added to the dog food cache bore tags from Alton Lindsay's biological program during his time at Little America II, the first scientific evidence of the species' non-migratory habits. Geologist Charles Passell's diary recounts a hectic and frustrating day on the 16th. The gun tractor conked out with dirty fuel lines. The tank served a little better, hitting the barrier with an impressive show of uphill speed. Sergeant Asman at the levers and Admiral Bird riding atop the hull because he's a slow learner. The tank could make progress forward while hauling, thereby saving Asman the cricked neck caused by trying to navigate the tractor in reverse, but sank to its hull when its narrow footprint tracks met deep snow for the first time. Anyone who's dug any vehicle out of any sort of bog down will sympathise with Passell. Quote, we dug and dug, shoveled more snow than I ever dreamed could exist, till finally we had the tank dug out. End quote. But not end drama. Passell connected a tow cable to Asman's tank, and at the signal gave it the herbs. The tractor stayed put, but the tank came out of its pit and crawled up the tractor's front end. Charles Passell thought it was game over, the nine-ton monster showing what it could do with a hard surface beneath it, and no amount of yelling to stop holding any chance of reaching the deafened tanker over the deafening engine noise. Asman stopped for some reason other than noticing he was about to crush his colleague to death, and Purcell and the little red tractor lived to slog another day, after Asman helped dig the now-bogged tractor out. Montmorency got the gun tractor moving, and his alternate coming on shift halfway through a tricky crevasse crossing, put it straight in said crevasse, escaping death by the happenstance that the crevasse wasn't a few centimetres wider, as the tractor wedged in just below the lip. More digging out. Charles Purcell had to get an overdraft on his imagination to encompass all the extra snow, though this time with the added fun of digging into a crevasse wall while roped in beneath a suspended gun tractor to bring it level to thereby allow its towing out. With the tank acting as dead man, the winch on the little red tractor managed to get the gun tractor clear of the first crevasse, and then the barrier gave way. For two days, the groaning let everyone know the ground beneath their feet was on the move, and while no one went to any great verbal length to record its stridulations, everyone knew a breakout of some sort seemed imminent. Perhaps the gun tractor going down the crevasse was the straw that broke out an eight-mile-long camel's back of ice. Newly stranded without sleeping bags or tents, Purcell and his shiftmates continued hauling, creeping the landed stores into the hinterland, while the ship cut lines to prevent excitement arising should the icebergs they now found themselves firmly moored to begin rolling. The commanders danced their ships through the newly busy waterways and moored up once more against the new barrier edge, though the unpaid overtimers didn't help their alternate shift dig new holes for new dead men wasting no time in getting aboard their floating homes and making gains on the day's losses in the mess, before falling into bed and sleep in a single action. Recounting this day in Passell's life to my wife, she commented that if anyone's going to put up with that sort of nonsense, it's a geologist, and I realised in that moment that she was bang on, because geologists are hard case and will suffer even more privations than biologists to see some rocks they've never seen before. 
The Barclay Grow seaplane went onto the water for its first Antarctic flight. With Ash Snow at the yoke and Bird in the supernumerary role, it took off and flew gracefully over the barrier. Then one engine stopped and presented Snow with the challenge of landing a float plane on ice. He pulled this off without injury to monkeys or airframe, and while I don't doubt the pilot's prowess, I think this says a lot about the previously mentioned Barclay Grow toughness too. The bear cast off lines and headed downshore to collect the stranded aircraft by application of winches, derricks and men with shovels. Bird skipped out on the 19th of January, taking the bear east to Cape Colbeck on the coast of Edward VII land for a series of reconnaissance flights over Marie Birdland, and to get out of the hard yards involved with getting Little America 3 established is my reading of Bird's mean, given the resources and opportunities on offer. That's an inference, but one I'm comfortable making. During one of these flights, reaching inland over the Edsel Ford Mountains, Pilot Snow barely kept everyone aboard the Barclay Grow from becoming geological, when on emerging from a cloud bank he found their course blocked by rock. He hauled back on the yoke and barely crested the unexpected mountain peak, thereby maintaining Bird's death-free expedition track record and Bird's death-free personal best time in one move. Further flights from points further east and south, the deepest any ship penetrated the pack in that quadrant to that date, didn't provide much geographic information due to poor visibility, and Bird ordered the bear back to the Bay of Wales. Further flights in the Barclay Grow helped Cruzen's crew find open leads to navigate through. The bear arrived back at the Bay of Wales on the 30th of January, but with work ashore still in full swing, Bird ordered the ship head further west to the coast of Victoria land for a visit to the Drygalski Ice Tongue. Orders from Roosevelt included an investigation into the present position of the South Magnetic Pole, and the Barclay Grow received ski undercarriage for a proposed ice runway takeoff at the Drygalski, the float gear being too heavy for the airframe to climb high enough to extend inland over the mountains and high plateau behind the Victoria land coast. The ice surfaces available for use as a runway proved unsuitable. The bear turned north to see if the shoreline offered better opportunities. Meanwhile, Ronnie caused resentment among the West Base contingent by distributing all the smallest boots to East Base designates, leaving any small-footed West Base locals swimming around in their size 11s or 12s. Then he ran his dog team into a condor wing heading up on the endless loop and did it some damage in an event reminiscent of his first outing at Little America 2. Kerosene in the fuel tanks of the tractors did them no favours, but the unloading settled into a routine and shit got done, completing the unload in 11 days with few other major screw-ups until one of the sailors, Lamberson, took a 20-foot fall onto his back while riding the hook, which is why we don't ride the hook these days. He didn't break bones, but Dr. Geyer saw signs of internal injuries and contemplated surgery to make sure things were where they needed to be and to stem any internal bleeding. A message went out to the bear to return and bring Dr. Frazier to assist. Bird was still faffing about, trying to make flights over McMurdo, and didn't commit to a return time. Captain Listad ordered the fuel drums for the bear unloaded onto the barrier, determined to carry Lamberson north to some better equipped medical facilities while Bird dallied and preened out east. One float-mediated flight down, 
and likely more to follow if the flying weather held. The North Star departed on the 24th, riding light and high, and offering a rough Southern Ocean ride to the skeleton crew carrying north. With their floating accommodations blocks gone, the West Bay's contingent got their army-issue cooking tent up, and Sigmund Gutenko set the stove to work brewing endless coffee and soup to fuel the establishment of sleeping tents while the tractors continued on the trail. Long shifts, endless daylight, deep cold, and the continuous noise of tractors and dog teams about the camp made sleep difficult. Passell recounts dozing at the levers of his tractor, but didn't fret, as the slow and stable course a tracked vehicle keeps only required his concentrated attention at the beginnings and ends of each parcel on the trailer, which has all the makings of a tragedy or a comedy that we don't know, because the Greek gods don't exist, and didn't see fit to punish that hydraulically actuated hubris with anything exciting or ironic. Chuck O'Connor took foreman duties on construction of the prefab base huts, ably aided by Ike Schlossback as his 2IC, bringing all hands to the heavy lifting task with a loud call of, Mac! The name he came to apply to everyone he didn't know yet. The buildings comprised the new standard prefab panels of rock wool insulation, sandwiched between plywood inner and drop-sided wooden outer layers, structures designed by the US Army Corps of Engineers for rapid deployment and erection in the lead-up to the Second World War. To seal the structures against wind and fine snow, canvas tents went over the building, held close by wooden battens nailed in place. A main hut housing the majority of base personnel in curtain partition bunk spaces, a sick bay, a galley and a mess, and smaller buildings housing the machine shop and laboratories, formed the nucleus of the new Little America. The science building featured a dark room, library, radio room, partitioned spaces for each scientific team, and a three-storey tower at one end for meteorological work, the topmost level providing a space for inflating, launching and tracking meteorological balloons. The machine shop carried forward the best traditions of Antarctic-based self-reliance, providing the carpenter, machinists and sailmaker the space and machinery necessary to repair or fabricate anything a sledging party or science program might require in the year-long stint between resubs, and also housed the two diesel gensets. The floors of the science building and main accommodation block featured Paul Seipel's double floor innovation, an airspace receiving circulating air from the heating system, insulating the people above from the cold-soaked barrier surface beneath their feet, making Little America 3 far more economical to heat than its predecessors. Antennae arose, one array for intercontinental communications, and another directed toward the Antarctic Peninsula to establish contact with eSpace once it came into being. Some of the motley mutleys caused problems at this point, one of Charles Passell's animals in particular, proving so slight of frame she regularly slipped out of harness while pulling. The harnesses, too, came in for critique, Ronnie catching flack for purchasing leather units that cinched about the animals' throats, rather than taking the load on their breasts. Boot bindings, skis, sled design and sled construction. There wasn't much Finn Ronnie didn't receive censure for, but unpopularity never phased the laconic Norwegian before, and didn't interest him as the bear made ready to carry the East Bay's contingent to their winter home. His chosen method of running dogs in tandem nines seemed to work well enough for the local conditions, though. 
a lead dog and pairs of power dogs either side of a centre trace, extendable ad infinitum for greater pulling power, so long as you had enough spare centre trace to keep adding pairs. Not the ultimate configuration in crevassed terrain, where a single dog breaking a snow bridge could lead to all dogs in the hole, but a sound means to make the most of the available pulling power, and easier to direct and control than some of the more crevasse-friendly harness rigs. The dogs slept outdoors on dog lines in the summer months. Stores and boxes were arranged into passageway walls between buildings, roofed over and allowed to accumulate snow. Tunnels dug into the snow berms forming over the passageways became the dog kennels during the winter dark, each team getting its own side tunnel. In late January 1940, an urgent radio message to Bird from the Expedition Executive Committee requested a copy of the Expedition's scientific program to present to the Congressional Committee overseeing an application for further funding. Committee member Commander John English first turned to the National Academy of Science for the documentation, but found, to his surprise, that they hadn't been involved in the development of the scientific program beyond hosting the initial meeting in Washington, D.C., Instead of informing English that the pace at which he forced the expedition elements to get their teams and equipment together saw many omissions, and apologising for the oversight caused by his pressing so hard to get away in time for the Austral summer of 1939, Bird instead said, That was Alton Wade's fault. I told him to do it, but he didn't do it, and it's not my fault, it's his fault. I might be putting words into his mouth there. And Wade did spend a lot of the intervening time in Chicago, enthusiastically assisting in the design and fabrication of the snow cruiser, but Bird was never good at owning all of the responsibilities of leadership, and that someone under his charge didn't fulfil Bird's responsibilities is, as any maritime master should understand as second nature, partly the fault of the leader, who either didn't delegate effectively or didn't manage their resources efficiently. The buck stops there, unless you're a weasel. Commander English fudged, he drew up a scientific program based on notes he made at the Washington meeting and handed it to Congress as though it was formally drawn up by the National Academy of Sciences. It served its purpose, allowing the US to trumpet its scientific credentials on a national stage, even though the document never arrived at East Base or West Base, the independent scientific programs taking place at, or setting out from, those strongholds of US prestige, dignity and probity. If word of this ever got out, it could seriously dent Bird's reputation, playing as it did to the accusations of his being more a showman than a serious geographer and explorer, and someone who only ever treated science as a means to a personal end. Oh, wait, it did get out. It got out to the extent that even a hack podcaster working from the popular literature could dig it up and throw it in his dead, stupid face. Dig up the fact of the failing, that is, not Bird's dead face. That'd be gross and disrespectful. In that order. David Day adds a paragraph to his assessment of that matter, along the lines that perhaps it was indicative of a mental decline following the carbon monoxide poisoning at advanced base on top of long years of alcohol abuse. But I see a strong pattern in bird treating science as only a crowbar, instead of an entire shed full of tools, levering his agenda to prominence and then not giving a damn what the rest of the toolshed might have to offer the rest of humanity. And dementia and alcoholism might be explanations, but they're not excuses. The guy was placed in charge of a large and important undertaking. If he wasn't up to it, the people above him need to own that, 
and take their share of the blame for the resulting shortcomings. In spite of Byrd's orders that he should establish Little America 3 in King Edward VII land to keep the US project clear of the Ross Dependency, the West Base site ended up lying inside the Ross Dependency, about four nautical miles from the previous two iterations of Little America, because you can't land stores on an ice cliff that's taller than your ship's mast, such as Paul Seipel found during his initial excursion to the east. The Staggerwing made a test flight on the 26th of January with Petras at the yoke and Alton Wade took the cosmic ray equipment aloft to make the effort pay off in data. The Condor reassembly project moved ahead at pace under the care of mechanic Pappy Gray, its test flight getting airborne on the 31st. The Bear threw off lines on the 1st of February and departed east, leaving behind the west-based wintering party, comprising Paul Seipel as leader, Alton Wade as senior scientist and geologist, Leonard Berlin as cadastral engineer, Arnold Court as meteorologist, Roy Fitzsimmons as magnetician, Dr. Russell Fraser as medico, Dr. Ernest Lockhart as physiologist, Charles Purcell as geologist, Jack Perkins as biologist, Lawrence Warner as additional geologist, Murray Weiner as auroral observer, Felix Ferranto and Clyde Griffith as part of the snow cruiser unit under Wade, Theodore Petrus as pilot, Lauren Wells, Adam Asman, Clay Bailey, Vernon Boyd, Jack Bursey, Raymond Butler, Louis Colombo, Malcolm Douglas, Walter Giles, Harold Gilmore, Orville Gray, James McCoy, Richard Moulton, James Reese, Harrison Richardson and Charles Shirley as transport team, Sigmund Gatenko as cook, Chuck O'Connor as carpenter, and Commander Ike Schlossbach as Paul Seipel's 2IC. Alton Wade, using Leonard Berlin's dog team, made a transit between the base and the main cache, but the dogs, rested since the unloading, gave him more go than he bargained for, and he lost his cap, glasses and whip under the acceleration, then lost the team altogether. Under lead dog Navy's instruction, the team changed course for the snow cruiser, where they killed and ate three penguins and bedded down for a nap. On arriving after the excitement, the exhausted geologist found one of the dogs dead, choked by its harness after losing its feet in the mad dash. If you lined up all the interesting bits of establishing West Base, it would play as a Keystone Cops-style slapstick, but Paul Seipel got his 32 people and 70-odd dogs into their accommodations before the temperatures fell away, and that's a pretty good effort. Sig Gatenko moved into his new kitchen on the 6th, and Seipel took his charges off the dual 12-hour shifts. The end of night shift carried an unexpected temporal outcome, in that with no night watch hands hassling for pre-bed comestibles, Gatenko regularly slept through the three alarm clocks set to wake him at five, allowing him the three hours required to thaw and cook breakfast. So several days kicked off late, because he can't operate at barrier temperatures that late in the summer without a belly full of hot food. The beach staggering, lacking the range and payload necessary to provide meaningful mutual support to the Curtis Condor, and not heading south atop the snow cruiser, retasked to support the physicists, providing the airborne laboratory for cosmic ray measurements clear of the magnetic and ionic interference of Little America 3, 
or at least I think that's the advantage of taking cosmic ray measurements up in an aircraft. I'll freely admit that there's a lot of physics I don't understand, and cosmic rays, while not the top of that pile, is at least far enough up the list of physics stuff I don't understand that there's a lot of other stuff taking precedence over it and filling up my reading and listening schedule. It's not that I don't love you cosmic rays, but I need to learn how to weld and how to speak Spanish and understand a lot of oceanography I'm only just now getting to grips with before I give you more of my attention than a brief read of a Wikipedia page about you. The Condor made its first photographic survey flight on the 9th, after a lot of difficulty getting the engines warm enough to start. Seipel tasked pilot Mack with a route out over the Rockefellers and the Edsel Fords, citing much of interest in the beyond to task the sledging teams slated for the following season, a total circuit of a thousand miles. Further flights to the barrier edge and to the southern margin of the Ross Ice Shelf followed, generating a library of images for later cartographic efforts and examining the easiest and safest possible routes available to surface parties. Another cosmic ray flight saw Petras and Griffith ascend to 21,000 feet in the Staggerwing, setting an altitude record in the region. The southern flight discovered a large glacier flowing through the Queen Maud range and entering the Ross Sea between geological features that would later, after surveying by Albert Crary, receive the names Mount Speed and the Waldron Spurs. Members of the Usasse named it the Shackleton Glacier because they thought that Irishman warranted a big thing named after him more than they thought the US might benefit from having as many American names scattered across the landscape, reminding the world who discovered what, and I feel quietly and distantly fond of whoever was responsible for that decision. Meanwhile, during the Bears' transit toward Marguerite Bay, Bird used a break in the weather to lower the Barclay Grow airframe onto the water and it made three flights. With the bear pushing through heavy pack and dodging icebergs well out to sea, two of these flights never reached the coast and only delineated where the as yet unseen Pacific flank of the continent didn't lie. The final flight, made during the final week of February, saw Bird and Dufek sight a lot of new territory and landmarks. Sketch maps of 700 nautical miles of previously unseen coast incorporating a mountain range, some offshore islands and a peninsula resulted, but without ground control points could easily come under the sort of derisive criticism the US geographic experts heaped on those maps arising from Alfred Richard's efforts on the other side of the continent. But when did less than precise and accurate cartography prevent Richard Evelyn Bird claiming and naming a thing and crowing loudly about it to anyone who would listen? Never is the answer to that particular rhetorical question. Two distinct coastal stretches sighted during this flight received the names the Eights Coast after James Eights, scientist aboard the Penguin during Wilkes XX, and the Walgreen Coast after the Retailer and Donor to the Usasse and Bird's previous Antarctic foray in the mid-1930s. A Dumbrell US Antarctic research and paraffin wax ear candles, together at last. After the aviators returned to the bear, the wind shifted, and accumulating pack almost iced the ship in. It was a near-run thing that they didn't spend the winter still a fair way shy of their peninsula goal. Cruisins helmed the old ship toward a water sky, and Bird curtailed further survey flights until the weather eased and stabilised, which it didn't, so they carried on to the Antarctic Peninsula. A March scouting flight over Marguerite Bay 
sighted a promising base site on Shako Island, and the still sturdy hut and intact caches left behind by the British Graham Land expedition at Barry Island in the Debenhams. The North Star joined the bear in Marguerite Bay after visiting Valparaiso to collect Pullen and Palmer and their charges, the second Curtis Condor and the East Base Prefab Building, among other stores, the entirety comprising the 600 tonnes of materials left behind after the US Coast Guard Northland was taken off the USASAE schedule. Chilean Naval Lieutenants First Class Ezequiel Rodriguez and Frederick Bonnet and Argentine Naval Lieutenant Junior Grade Emilio Diaz also joined the ship as US-invited observers. Reaching the shore of Bird's preferred East Base site on Chaco Island proved difficult. Captain Ryder steered the Panola, a much smaller vessel than either the Bear or the North Star, with infinite care in depositing and retrieving the British Graham Land expedition to and from Marguerite Bay several years prior, and the USASAE ships struggled to stay off the hard in the confined waters and adverse winds experienced in the Nini Fjord, the ship's launches sounding the safest path, and the ship's navigation officers keeping busy updating their charts as previously unknown shoals came to light. They couldn't reach, let alone unload onto, Shako Island because of the sea ice conditions, so an island featuring a glacial ramp attaching it to the mainland was selected as the site for East Base, and the future home for 75 dogs and 26 men, whose names and roles I shall chant out now. Besides Richard Black as leader, and Finn Ronnie as 2IC. Then there was Herwell Bryant, biologist, Arthur Carroll, photographer, Zedek Collier, aviation machinist, Herbert Dorsey, meteorologist, Henrik Dolman, dog driver, Glenn Dyer, cadastral engineer, Carl Eklund, ornithologist, Joe Healy, dog driver, Archie Hill, cook, Donald Hilton, assistant surveyor and dog driver, Paul Knowles as geologist, Elmer Lampler, Radioman, Lester Lurk, bosun's mate and sailmaker, Anthony Morenci, tank driver, Lytton Musselman, dog driver, Howard Odom, assistant radio man, Robert Palmer, assistant to meteorologist and love addict, Earl Purse, co-pilot and radioman, William Pullum, aviation machinist's mate, Charles Charbonneau, carpenter, Dr. Lewis Sims, Base Medico, Ashley Snow Jr., Chief Pilot, Clarence Steele, Tank Driver, and Perry Darlington III, United States Naval Reserve, as Dog Driver and Youngest Resident at East Base. Darlington read Bird's books in his adolescence and generated sightful levels of admiration for the Rear Admiral. His two ambitions were to go to Antarctica and Pensacola to train as a naval aviator. He joined the expedition after making a personal entreaty to Bird, who was always eager to be adored. Richard Black and Finn Ronnie set out across thin sea ice with another five East Base personnel to examine their new home. The stagnant glacier, known simply as the Northeast Glacier, which later receded to leave open water between the island and the mainland sometime in the 1970s, could serve the West Base Denizen's transport needs through the winter and later investigation revealed a flat expanse some distance uphill from which the condor could operate. 
lying inside the Falkland Islands dependency and what would soon become claimed as the Argentine and Chilean territories. The selected island received the moniker Stonington Island after Nathaniel Palmer's hometown. The remaining tracked vehicles went ashore for hauling duties. The gun tractor received the faux roll cage comprising bamboo poles, chicken wire and canvas, geared to offer some protection to the driver should the machine end up in a crevasse. But thankfully, no one ever put the structure to the test, and I can only imagine bamboo splinters and chicken wire pattern frostbite adding to the misery experienced by anyone already having a bad day in a crevasse. The second Curtis Condor went ashore in kit form aboard the ship's tenders. Getting the aircraft up to its operating field on the glacier proved difficult. Two attempts at towing it with the tracked vehicles failing and causing some damage to one of the ski pedestals. After making repairs, Pilot Snow flew the lightly laden machine to the airfield with just enough fuel for the job, taking off from the sea ice barely strong enough to get the job done. The footage of the large aircraft taxiing and starting its takeoff run among the surrounding ice cliffs and mountainsides that Thomas Henderson included in his documentary, Ice Eagles, makes for some unsettling viewing. Even with a good airframe in hand, I'd experience second thoughts about taking off from that site, let alone in a Curtis Condor. Much better, methinks, to wait for the sea ice to thicken up in Back Bay and take off from the flat without so many vertical surfaces so close to hand. Or, even better, wait until aviation technology developed to the point that the de Havilland Canada Beaver got invented and shipped south to take care of the job. And anyone familiar with the DHC family of bush planes will know what I'm talking about. More of which are none. Lots more, because the Beaver and Otter and their twin and turbine engine derivatives have an association with Antarctica almost as long as their overall and continuing history. A hundred tons of stores and materials went ashore to make the US fourth overwinter base and keep it operating for at least a year. As with previous expeditions, dog food was only carried for the sea voyage, local resources being expected to make up the intervening meals in seal and penguin form. A hundred seals went in the case before the seals stopped turning up for the winter. Five prefab huts became the East Base living quarters, workshops, offices and laboratories in a similar array as applied at West Base. Following the pattern of isolation he applied at Little America too, Finn Ronnie used packing cases and other surplus materials to construct his own accommodation, which he shared with radio operator Lytton Musselman and photographer Arthur Carroll. I guess they enjoyed one another's company well enough, and that the discomforts of outdoor transits to meals were made up for by relative privacy. East base accommodations were completed by the end of April, and a photograph of Finn Ronnie reading in his bunk gives an overall impression of cramped coziness and far greater levels of comfort than Little America's one or two ever afforded. Adding to my affection for East Base, a cat called Polo Sur went ashore and spent winter among the monkeys. Cozy bunk berths and a friendly cat in the accommodation block. What's not to like? I don't know how Polo Sur broke a leg, but there's a most charming photograph of Dr. Sims setting a cast on the injured limb, while the cat's suspended in a canvas sling, supported from a wooden frame by a, a cat's cradle of string, would be the best literal and figurative description of that arrangement, I guess. Mm-hmm.